Good morning, church. Thank you, Pastor Andrew, for your prayer today. That song, How Deep the Father's Love, man, I tell you what, uh, I'm sure you have a handful of worship songs that it seems like the Spirit always speaks to you through, and that one is it for me right now, man. It's amazing how the Lord, through so many different things, song, other people, his word speaks to us so clearly. And uh, the line, uh, what should I gain from his reward? I, I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Man. Today we're continuing our study in the book of Micah, the just God who is also merciful. But if there's been one big takeaway from the book so far, it's the greatness of God. Maybe you've noticed that going back all the way to chapter one, as we combine all of these things we've learned about God, the one standout is his greatness. The first few chapters, especially the first three, really focused on God's justice. And we're given this overwhelming sense that Nothing escapes the eye of the Lord, right? He sees everything. He sees what these wicked landowners are doing to the common person. He sees what the prophets are saying and so on and so forth. He sees all things and he sees them for what they are. Because of the injustice and sin filling the land of Israel, God will bring judgment, he says. He is the one to do it. Micah chapter 4, verses 9 through 13, our text today, continues the theme from last week of God moving into action. Remember the beginning of chapter 4. As we saw, it was kind of like a breath of fresh air, right? (laughs) It's like a break in the action. We're not hearing just of judgment anymore, but how God will deliver his people. And after becoming well acquainted with the justice of God at the beginning of the book, we get that taste of mercy. And once again, in mercy, we see God act. So God acts in justice and God acts in mercy. It was the word of the Lord, right, who brought the nations to the Mount of Zion. He was the one that brought peace to the world and ended the disputes between the nations. He gathered the lame and the afflicted to himself. And so, in the justice of God and in the mercy of God, we see ultimately his greatness, Our text today is a perfect example of the greatness of God on display. So let's stand and read Micah chapter 4, verses 9 through 13. Micah 4, 9 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, they do not understand his plan that he's gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples, 
and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Please be seated and let's pray. Lord, we humbly submit this time to you. And we recognize that we are unworthy to to hear your word, that we don't deserve your communication with us, but you are both a just God and a merciful God. And so you give us yourself. We pray that by your word we would we would live righteous lives, that we would mold our lives around your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. This week, God deals more directly with his people in the now, in the present time when Micah is speaking. Micah pictures Israel in these verses in the midst of a crisis, which they are coming to very shortly. In fact, chapter 4, verses 9 through 13, and chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, give us three answers to the crisis of invasion from the enemy nations of the world. The northern kingdom of Israel is about to be invaded. But Israel and Judah are very close together. So that's a crisis. Assyria is invading. That's what the people are facing. Invasion, defeat, and exile. The southern kingdom of Judah is facing a massive army that is promising defeat in future exile. So this week we'll look at two of the responses the Lord has for his people to this crisis. Chapter 4, 9 through 10 is one response. 11 through 13 is a second. So it's clear in these verses that God is the one who is in complete control of the situation. And we see in verses 9 through 10, first that God, God's chastised people are redeemed. God's chastised people are redeemed. The beginning of chapter 4 references the future. It shall come to pass in the latter days. Again, in verse 6, we read, in that day, pushing toward the future. But here in verse 9, we read, now. That's an, that's an important word for us this morning. What Micah is doing is he's, he's bringing the nation to the present. And each of the three answers to the same crisis of invasion start with the word Now. The beginning of chapter 4 had its fulfillment mostly in the future, in the last days when Christ returns. But these oracles will have the majority of their fulfillment in the not-so-distant future. Verse 9, now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Micah's poetic words are powerful. It's a powerful word picture here. The future looks bright for the people of God in verses 1 through 8. But right now, they're like a woman experiencing labor pains, which as a man doesn't sound very fun. Micah's questions are accusative, and he plays the part of acting surprised. The people are crying loudly like a woman in labor, and Micah asks why. King and counselor here are both a reference to the same person, the king of Judah. And so he asks, don't you have an earthly king that you trust who would never do anything wrong? Don't you have a wise counselor in a king who would always serve the Lord? The, The questions are thick with sarcasm. The answer is no. 
The people had trusted in their king to solve their problems, and their king, instead of turning to to the Lord, failed. You see, the kings of Israel and Judah both had a bad habit of trying to resolve the kingdom's problems, especially problems of invasion, through treaties with pagan countries, larger pagan countries. For instance, the last king of the northern kingdom of Israel made a treaty with Assyria. But then he turned around and made a treaty with Egypt. And Assyria didn't like that. And so they invaded. You can read about that in 2 Kings 17. And in 2 Kings 18, we learn that Hezekiah, the good king of the southern kingdom, who would bring reform to that kingdom, made a bad treaty with Egypt. It was a common mistake, especially for a small country. You want to have power around you, but it's a bad mistake if God is really your king. The kings were supposed to rely upon the Lord for their safety and only do things that he wanted them to do. So Micah's sarcastic question calls out the over-reliance of the people of Judah on their king who had continually failed. Why are they crying so loud if they have such a good king and counselor who can get them out of any problem? The answer is because their king made a bad mistake. He had failed. I wonder if Micah would say similar things about us in times of crisis. Micah's words helpfully point out a powerful truth. In times of crisis, our actions reveal what we have actually put our faith in. For the nation of Judah, it seems like they trusted in their king instead of trusting in their God. And when crisis comes into our lives, is there a particular person you've put your faith in, a particular thing or amount of money or bank account? or Have you put your faith in yourself to solve all your problems? Every human being will fail to live up to the faith we put in them because they're imperfect. They're fallen. But if the people of Israel had put their faith in God, then that faith would have been proved worthy in a time of crisis. And it's the same with us. Only the Lord is strong enough to bear you up under the weight of intense trial. Judah's outcry is an emotional response, not an outcry to the Lord. Notice that. It's a cry of pain, not a cry of prayer. They're in great pain because the person they placed their faith in had failed, and they're seeing that. But God encourages us to cry out to him for help. The reason why Israel failed to cry out to God was because they didn't know him well enough. Listen to Psalm 46. Listen to these words. Psalm 46, 1 through 3. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. That's the right response to crisis. Because we know who our God is, that he is our refuge and our strength, that he is our very present help in trouble, we don't fear. 
We don't even fear when the world is falling down, when mountains fall into the ocean. What do we have to fear when the God we've put our faith in is so great? But the Israelites aren't crying out to God. They're just crying out in pain. Micah encourages them to continue crying out, to cry out all the more because their pain is going to increase. Look at verse 10. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. Micah does a really interesting thing with language here. He starts off asking why they're being like a woman in labor and says, continue doing that because it's going to get worse. He continues that picture of childbirth. And at that time, that was a metaphor. Woman in labor was a metaphor commonly used to express distress. You'd say, I'm like a woman in labor, especially if you heard bad news. And man, does Micah deliver some bad news to the kingdom of Judah here in verse 10. Maybe the worst news they could possibly hear. The kingdom of Judah would be defeated. And they would be carried off to Babylon. It can't get much worse than that. In chapter 1, we read about the fall of the northern kingdom of, of Israel. Assyria would invade And the capital of the northern kingdom, Samaria, would fall. We read about that in chapter 1. Here we learn that the southern kingdom, the kingdom that had the temple, the kingdom with the seat of the true king of David, would also fall. It's devastating news. Devastating. And of course, it would come true. Around 115 years after Micah gave this prophecy the Babylonians would lay siege to the city of Jerusalem for 18 months. After finally starving out its citizens, they would take the city and deport the inhabitants to Babylon. Horrible stuff. In chapter 2, we talked about the importance of the land in the midst of the normal, everyday citizen of Israel. The importance of the land for them was huge. The wicked landowners were, were... We're taking land that didn't belong to them, thereby taking the inheritance of the families that God gave them. So for for Micah to prophesy that all of Judah would be taken out of the land was tantamount to him saying God was taking away the inheritance of the people of Israel, the gift he'd given them. It's important to understand how devastating that would be. It wasn't just that the people would lose their homes and their way of life, their property and their cattle and their good views or anything else. Those were all secondary. The primary punishment here is that the people would be driven out of the presence of God. The temple was in Jerusalem. That was the only place God could be worshipped to the fullest extent of the law where sacrifices could be made, legitimate worship. But if Jerusalem is leveled and the temple is destroyed and the people are exiled, then what of God's promises? What of his faithfulness? How would they worship him? Where would they find him? And that's why the exiles of Israel and Judah are so significant. 
is God rejecting his people? Is this the end of the covenant? The decisive and powerful answer from the Lord in Micah 4 is no. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now that's some fantastic news. The Lord will rescue and redeem his people from Babylon and bring them back. But notice two things. First, this good news would do little to soften the blow of the truth that they would still be exiled. It's wonderful that God would bring them back eventually, but the people are still going to have to give metaphorical birth to that promise. They'll still be exiled from their land. Which brings us to the second thing of note. Notice how Micah twice uses the word there. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you. There's no question about where those things would happen. They're not going to be rescued from Babylon when they first invade their land. They're not going to be rescued from the war that they bring and the siege of the city of Jerusalem. They're going to be rescued in Babylon. The Lord's going to chastise his people first. And then he's going to redeem them. So let's have a moment to let that sink in. The Lord is going to chastise his people first. And then he's going to redeem them. It's not because God is unable to save his people from the Babylonian invasion in a hundred years. It's not because he doesn't know that it's coming. He purposefully lets the people of Judah experience exile, defeat and exile. And only after they receive his justice do they receive his mercy. God is going to bring his people to a point of weakness before he restores them. Why? Why not save them from the suffering to begin with? Why would God let them experience something like that? The words rescue and redeem stand out here, don't they? That he uses both of those words. It's Exodus language. It's Exodus language. The people of Judah will experience a second Exodus, which is really wonderful. But just like Israel had to be enslaved in Egypt in order to experience the first Exodus, so now they have to experience exile in order to experience redemption. The reason God let his people go through the exile before redemption is twofold for their good and for his glory. For their good, for his glory. Israel had sinned against God. Even the southern kingdom of Judah. They had transgressed the covenant that they had made. They received the justice of the Lord, but not as an end in itself, not as the ultimate good. The judgment they received, the chastisement and discipline they received from the Lord was given so that they would understand better the God that they worshipped and the way of righteousness and right relationship with him. And that's always the case when God chastises us. There are times, there are times when God purposes certain things that are painful and difficult 
so that we would better understand him and so that we would better understand what it means to be like Jesus, better understand the way of righteousness. Now, we need to be careful. There are some mistakes we can make with that application of truth, but that is true. Not every bad thing we endure is because of our sin or because God is punishing us. And not every good thing that we lack is due to a deficiency in our faith or something like that. But sometimes, sometimes God lets us experience chastisement in order to reform us and refocus our eyes on him. And that's the case with the people of Israel. God let them go through exile in order to reform them, literally. The Lord often brings us low so that he can raise us up by his power. Amen? Maybe not the happiest truth to hear this morning, but a good one. The Lord often brings us low on purpose so that he can raise us up by his power and so that we can know him more through it. Amen? Commenting on this passage, um, right here on this passage, John Calvin said this, even from the grave, he will deliver and redeem you. Whenever you are cast down that no strength, no vigor remain in us, how then can we rise? By the power of God, who by his voice alone can restore us to life. God corrects us like a good father. And we should welcome that correction, knowing it's for our benefit and for his glory. God is glorified when we look like his son. And sometimes we need to receive a rebuke and correction from the Lord when we do something wrong outside of his revealed will. So will that feel nice? No. But God's correction is always worth enduring. And praise the Lord for the words we read in Micah, not Micah, Isaiah 53. Listen to these words, a very famous chapter, about Jesus. Don't forget these words. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Upon Christ. Jesus is the greatest picture of this truth. The sin of the world had to be dealt with. It was so heavy that the price for it was death. And Christ paid that price. Praise the Lord. And in order to show the greatness of God's grace, death was not the last thing for Jesus. Christ conquered death, showing us the power of his sacrifice. Sin has been dealt with in the body of Christ. The Lord will not make you pay for your sin with death. Praise the Lord. The Lord will not make you pay for your sin with death, even though that's the price for it. Christ has paid that price for you. And any correction that he brings to us now, after the cross, after he has raised us from dead, is worth enduring for the knowledge that it's in order to bring us closer to him. Amen? It's a good thing when the Lord corrects us. We don't need to fear the discipline of our good father. But God's enemies do. And second, we see 
that God's prideful enemies are crushed. In Micah 9, Micah 4. Let's read, reread verse 11. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. At the beginning of chapter 4, the nations are presented in a good light. You remember that? It seems like the beginning of that chapter was all about the nations coming back to God. They stream to the presence of God. They flow to him. They're eager to hear his word. They even encourage each other to go up to the presence of the Lord to, to hear the word of God. They have peace instead of dispute. Those are all good things for the nations, right? But those will be the case in the latter day. Something we can look forward to. But now, notice that word again. Now, the nations are gathered against Judah, the daughter of Zion. The nations in question are Assyria and the many vassal states that make up their massive army. Okay, so <clears throat> historically, this has been the case for millennia. Armies would form by massive countries through their relationship with other little countries that were dependent upon them. Okay, so assembled at the gate of Jerusalem, pictured right here, is a huge Assyrian army. They're gathered against Zion. In 2 Kings 18, we read about the Assyrian attack on the city of Jerusalem. Sennacherib, we talked about this in chapter 1, but Sennacherib, the general of the Assyrian army, gathered his army around the city. You can imagine looking out over this huge army, right? which we're told is more than 185,000 men strong, and seeing a bunch of different standards from different countries and a bunch of different uniforms and scary-looking dudes who are going to come get you. The nations truly did gather against Zion. Micah pictures these nations as leering defilers who are eager to take their prize. They want to defile Jerusalem. That's an important point. They understand that the city is sacred to the people of God. They understand its sacredness. So they want to take what is sacred and defile it. Their intentions are sacrilegious, and the language is rapacious. The language used here to describe the nations is dark and gross. But God is not caught off guard. On the contrary, it's the nations who do not understand the thoughts of the Lord. They don't get what's about to happen. They do not know the thoughts of the Lord, we read. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. So the nations are kept in the dark. They do not understand that their desire to defile the sacred home of the temple of the Lord has brought them to the threshing floor. And Jerusalem is going to be the one who does the threshing. <clears throat> Verse 13, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hoofs bronze. And you, you shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. So the nations, the huge army of Assyria, made up of all of these different little countries, they're described as a sheaf of grain brought to the threshing floor, which would have been a huge insult to Sennacherib. 
to this huge army. They're nothing but a handful of grain that God can bring and throw down on the ground. And they're thrown down on the threshing floor. You see, in in order to separate the grain from the stock, the ancient Israelites used a type of machine that was attached to the back of an ox. It was heavy, laid on the floor, and studded on the bottom with iron spikes. And the ox would drag that machine over the grain, and it would grind it and separate it from the stock. That's how Micah describes what's going to happen to the nations who are gathered against Jerusalem. They're going to be brutally crushed. Judah is even pictured as the ox that pulls the threshing machine over the grain. And God will grant Israel an iron horn, which is a stand-in for indestructibility. And he will grant Israel a bronze hoof, an unavoidable crushing heaviness, in order to lay waste the Assyrian army. And after defeating the nations, Israel will devote the wealth of Assyria to the Lord. That's a a callback to when Israel first entered the land, when they first received the promised land in the book of Joshua. They'll devote the spoils of the defeated army to the Lord as an act of worship. And we're told here that the Lord is the Lord of the whole earth. Verses 11 through 13 present God in all of his might, fighting on behalf of his people. But you might have several questions about these verses that are worth considering. And and they're theological questions. And I think it's worth taking our time to look into this. The meaning of the text is clear. God's greatness is unassailable. And he empowers his people to accomplish his will. And in this case, the people of Israel will defeat the army of Assyria, no matter how big it is. In fact, when that actually happens, God himself will kill 185 Assyrians. But there are questions. First, you might ask, was it the nation's pride, the nation's plural, was it their pride or God's will that brought them to Jerusalem to be crushed? Because we see both here. The short answer is both. Ultimately, it was God's will to crush his enemies and make Israel victorious over them, which may give us pause. We don't typically think of God in this way. But in order to show his immeasurable greatness, Micah tells us that God gathered them to the threshing floor, the nations. The nations did not understand the thoughts of the Lord. They did not understand his plan. It was his plan to crush them. But does that mean that God does something wrong here or sinful? Of course not. The nations that are brought to Jerusalem to be crushed, crushed 100% deserved what they received. Not only was Assyria an incredibly cruel country who treated their enemies horribly, showing no mercy, but they had the gall to rise up against the people of God and defile the home of the Lord. 
So the Lord used them to judge his people, specifically the northern kingdom, who they brought into exile. But does that excuse their sin? No. The Assyrians deserved to be crushed. I encourage you to to read at length the blasphemous and horrible words recorded, the words of Sennacherib the general in 2 Kings 18. This was not a nice guy. This was not a servant of the Lord. Even though the Lord used him and his army to accomplish his purposes in the northern kingdom, it doesn't mean that they were God's servants. God planned to crush the Assyrians. And what they had planned to defile the sacred city of Jerusalem was used against them. They wanted to see that city crushed, but they didn't realize that the God of Israel is really the God of the whole earth. But we might then ask, what about Assyria's free will? Right? Here's something we need to understand. We need to understand God is in control of all things. We need to believe that. If God is God, then he knows all things and he is in control of all things. And nothing falls outside of his plan and purposes and will. He always accomplishes them. Nobody can thwart his plans. But that never means that he is the source of evil or sin. God is sovereign over history. But we are responsible for the things that we do. And we are accountable to God for them. God's foreknowledge, his knowledge of the future, does not negate our responsibility for our choices, our sinful choices. And our will to sin does not mean that God did not know that we would choose to do that. God is perfectly aware of every event in history. From the beginning to the end, right now, all at once. He is in control. He is God. And we are not like him, which means we are faced with choices all day long, minute by minute, hour by hour. Some of them are choices to live righteously or choices to sin. We are responsible for those choices that we make hour by hour and day by day. The freedom of our will, you see, is compatible with the providential will of God, like a man under an umbrella. The Assyrians deserved the punishment they received because they actually made the choices they made. And that's true for us. They decided to defile Jerusalem, so they went up against the people of God and they received the due penalty for their sin. That's true. But it's also true that God directed history to bring the Assyrians to Jerusalem at a certain point in time in order to display his glory and justice. Both are true at the same time, and they do not contradict one another. God is sovereign over all things, and we cannot make choices outside of his will, but we don't experience time like that. We are human beings. We experience choices as they come, and we decide what we will do to honor God or not. So we are still responsible for our own sin, while God is always righteous in his plans. Heavy stuff. Hard topic. If you're interested in this more at length, read the book of Habakkuk. It's all about this. The book of Habakkuk is all about this. 
But the second question that you might ask stems from the imagery Micah uses here. The nation of Judah, a holy nation, living before God in covenant with him, is pictured as a crushing ox victorious in battle. So if God is loving, how is that okay? Well, as we've seen from the other chapters of Micah, God is loving, he's merciful, but he's also just. Okay, so here's a good piece of theology that you need to be aware of, that we believe. The attributes of God, his love, his holiness, his grace, his justice, and many more, cannot be separated from him. They're not like pieces of a puzzle, okay? That when you put all the attributes of God together, you get God. It's not like that. God's love is just. His justice is loving. In theology, this is a doctrine called divine simplicity. Divine simplicity. Not that God is simple or dumb or easy to understand even, but that he's simple in the sense that he's not made up of parts. He's not like a robot put together or a puzzle piece or even like us. All that is in God, all his attributes, all that can be said about God, all that is in God is God. All that is in God is God. He is radically different than us. He is not a big human being in the sky with a long white beard. All that is in God is God. That's why John can say, God is love. Not that God is loving or that God can love or that he's lovable or anything like that. He doesn't have love like we have an arm or an eyeball. He is love. Just as he is holy and just as he is all-knowing. All that is in God is God. Heavy stuff. When we see God crushing the Assyrians with the ox of Judah, we aren't seeing one attribute of God taking over while the others are set aside. Okay? We aren't seeing the outbursting of God's justice against God's mercy. I'm going to set mercy aside now, and I'm only going to be just. That's not how God does it. Which means this. When we see God act, when he acts, he does it all at once. Not out of certain emotions or feelings or aspects. Love now, justice later, mercy now, grace later. When he crushes the Assyrians, it simultaneously means that it is just and loving and gracious and wrathful and good and holy. God is not like us. His ways are not our ways. Truly, the words of verse 12 can be applied to us, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. And so when we see God doing something like this, we need to understand that his actions never contradict his attributes How can a loving God let this happen? No, that's not how God is. Because all his attributes are one and the same. All that is in God is God. 
His love is his mercy and his justice and his holiness. Everything he does is always perfectly holy and perfectly loving, always, without question. He is never not perfectly himself. When we read things like this, we're confronted with a God who is not like us. This is so outside of our imagination that it only speaks to the godness of God. This is who God is. He's not your nice grandpa. He's not even your mean father. He is not a human being. He's not even an angel. He is God. And to be God means this. To do everything all at once. He is perfectly holy, loving, just, merciful, and gracious all at once. Now, it might be hard to grasp. I get it. Especially if you've never even heard the, the doctrine of simplicity. I get it. But when we read scriptures like this, we can't pit God against God. Oh, God seems mean here. Because some of us have made the mistake, some of us meaning pastors, have made the mistake of saying, well, <clears throat> we should really just focus on the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, we find God in all of his love. Because he finally gives his son and, and all of that. And really, the God of the Old Testament is, he's learning. And then he finally figured it out. He figures it out eventually. And then he sends his son. That's not God. God is not like us. God knew from the beginning what he would do in Christ. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is there at the same time. He is perfectly just and loving to you. Everything that he has done for you in Christ is all of himself giving himself fully to you. Just because we can't grasp all of this in our minds doesn't mean that God doesn't love you eternally. He is wonderful and much bigger than us. Amen? And that is a very good thing. Or else, if we could understand God in who he was, in, as theologians say, in his being, if we could understand God, he wouldn't actually be God. He would be an idol. So the God who crushes the Assyrians also crushes his son. And that was simultaneously just and loving, gracious and wrathful, good and holy. And when the God of the whole earth acts in history, he does so to bring himself glory, which is the ultimate good thing. The glory of God is the ultimate good thing. And that's where verse 13 leaves us. The glory of God. The greatness and majesty of God. The wealth gained from the fallen army of Assyria will be devoted to the Lord. And that will actually bring God glory. Amen. That's wonderful. Now there's been a lot of rich theology in these verses that maybe you didn't anticipate. So let's take a breath for a second. And consider something else before we finish. Not disconnected, but rich. In verses 9 through 10, God's people are brought low. And then they're redeemed. And in verses 11 through 13, God's enemies are at a high point. Think, they think they're going to get a lot of glory, but then they're crushed and brought low. They're the opposite of one another. The world believes what it wants to believe. 
It doesn't know the plans of God. It doesn't know the mind of God. If we have the right relationship with the Lord, we need to begin from a place of lowly dependence. God has redeemed for himself a people for his own possession through the gracious death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All who confess their sin and believe, not in their own strength and their own works and might, but in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ will be forgiven of their sin. Those who are brought low, poor in spirit, will be redeemed. That's the good news of the gospel, and it can be found right here in Micah 4. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we do not pretend to understand you. But Lord, we worship you. And we trust you. And we know that you are good. And we know that we can know you and what you've revealed to us about yourself. And so, Lord, here we we see your greatness. Lord, we know that you are great. And we worship you for that. You are great. You have worked out all things to redeem a people for yourself. Lord, we don't deserve that at all. We are very conscious of our sin. We confess it and we repent of it. And we pray that you would bring us closer, that you would draw us closer. In Jesus' name, amen.